everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Workrout. Today we have what I think is our most ambitious episode we've done yet in ways, because we will be attempting to cover three of the greatest movies of all time by maybe the most influential director ever, Alfred Hitchcock. We are, you know, celebrating Hitchcocktober, spooky season, and today we'll be covering Rebecca, Rear Window, and Psycho. I'm sure we could have like seven different pods just on the career of Hitchcock because one, it's massive, two, everything is amazing. His style is so influential and so unique. And I feel like you could dissect his movies really well and just talk about shots or sequences for an extended period of time. So we'll try not to do that too much today. Yeah, we're going to do that today. (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) Okay, fair. I am really excited to talk about these three and hopefully get to talk about maybe some others very briefly as well. Yeah, I was thinking about this when watching like each one of these movies we could do an entire podcast series on like each one mm-hmm. of these that's how mm-hmm. much there is to really say so bear with us we will be scratching the surface on these and the reason why we're talking about these 3 we've been talking about directors and Alfred Hitchcock was nominated 5 times for best director and never won just moment of silence So of the five times he was nominated for Best Director, the first time was in 1940 for Rebecca, but he ended up losing to John Ford for The Grapes of Wrath. Then in 1944, he was nominated for Lifeboat. He lost to Leo McCary for Going My Way, which also won Best Picture. And then the next year, he was nominated for Spellbound, but lost to Billy Wilder for The Lost Weekend, also winning Best Picture. In 1954 was Rear Window. He lost to Elia Kazan for On the Waterfront. And lastly, in 1960 for Psycho, again, lost to Billy Wilder for The Apartment. And I'm okay with him losing to Billy Wilder of all of the greats, but... (laughs) But twice, like... Yeah, uh... there's like an of your time kind of award. I don't know if that really went to Billy Wilder, but how do you feel about him losing to these five and would you have swapped him with one of the winners controversially i would have given it to him for psycho instead of to billy wilder for the apartment um Hmm. i love the apartment both of these movies are five star Mm -hmm. films for me but i think that the direction in psycho is wildly impressive i think the lost weekend i would rather billy wilder like beat him for spellbound because Spellbound for me is the weakest of the Mm -hmm. five. But also the Rebecca Best Director loss is disturbing to me, considering that he won Best Picture. I just find it odd not to step Mm -hmm. on how I would rank these later, but Rebecca is my other favorite. So I feel like that should have been an easy Best Picture, Best Director win. But that was his first movie in America, so that might have played a part in that. There were only three splits between Picture and Director in the 40s. And the last split before this, I think, was four years prior. So we've mentioned this before. You've said this before. Like, splits weren't that common. But, of course, it had to happen to Hitchcock where he lost. (laughs) Yeah. And, of course, I would have nominated him for other movies besides these five. But it is kind of interesting to look at these. You know, nominated three times in the 40s, only once in the 50s, and then again in 1960. And that's just kind of it. 
yeah, when I was looking up the movies that he was nominated for and what was snubbed, I was kind of surprised. And of his films, 16 of them amassed 46 total nominations at the Oscars. Some other winners included Suspicion, which won Best Actress for Joan Fontaine. <laughs> I, I just don't like You're that like, win. I'm sorry. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Spellbound, winning Best Music, Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture, To Catch a Thief for Best Cinematography, Color, and The Man Who Knew Too Much for Best Music, Original Song, which was Whatever Will Be, Will Be, Que Sera Sera. You mentioning that he was nominated fewer and fewer times later on. He won the, you know, Of Your Time Award, the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award in 1968, which... (laughs) That's always what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Irving G. Thalberg, Cecil B. DeMille. It's like, we got it wrong. We gave Best Director sometimes to people who didn't deserve it. And now we're going to give you this mm-hmm. as a little consolation prize. Yeah, and with the Cecil B. DeMille, so that's at the Golden Globes. They kind of treated him the same way there. He only got one Best Director nomination for Frenzy which I haven't seen. How weird, yeah. And then two <laughs> other wins, Janet Lee for Supporting Actress for Psycho, which is a good one, and then Tippi Hedren for Most Promising Newcomer for The Birds. And then four years after he won the Irving G. Thalberg Award, they gave him the Cecil B. DeMille Award in 1972. So, <laughs> I mean, what's challenging is that this is a big case of someone who in his time was considered a pop entertainer. And... Mm-hmm. He wasn't taken seriously. You know, maybe it was due to genre. Maybe it was how he viewed sex and violence in his movies. How things that were shown in his movies, which we will talk about, were never really seen before, literally, on screen. So it is interesting to look back and think about, like, okay, why did people not want to celebrate him back then? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me because, of course, you know, we're on the other side. We've never seen a Hitchcock movie on opening night or like Mm -hmm. before we didn't know spoilers in some cases. I always remember reading stories of Psycho and how he was like very adamant on when the movie started, like people could not enter the theater. And I feel like we don't get that popular, but really articulate and finely crafted kind of movie or I guess horror movie for that matter anymore. Yeah, I agree, because I think, you know, his influences today are so clear, right? Like, you can look at a David Fincher movie and say, okay, he loves Hitchcock. You can look at a Denis Villeneuve movie or a Christopher Nolan movie, and you can, like, start to pull apart those elements where you can see the influence there. But one thing that I love about Hitchcock, I just think he's a really daring filmmaker. And we don't get daring filmmakers today that make really popular movies they're making like art house stuff that is kind of like pushed to the side and part of that is because of the time right we're in this ip dominated universe but also hitchcock movies are fun like they're funny they have very kinky elements to them i will mention one later yes okay (laughs) and a lot of these other movies just that we're thinking of today that i think are suspenseful or that have these you know big set pieces sometimes they lack that humor Mm -hmm. in the same way that hitchcock used it so you know i feel really lucky that we live in a time when he's as honored as he is i think his movies because like now we can watch them and we can analyze them and of course there's just 
tons of research and scholarship that has been done on his movies and his life. So I'm excited to talk about these three in particular today as like different points of his career, but also like very different types of films that use some similar elements where you can tell they're very clearly his. I think what's interesting to note is that he got started working in silent movies. And something he says when he was being interviewed by Francois Truffaut was, when we tell a story in cinema, we should resort to dialogue only when it's impossible to do otherwise. I always try first to tell a story in the cinematic way through a succession of shots and bits of film in between. I think this is really fascinating because he uses the silent film backbone to really focus on the image and not doing any superfluous filmmaking. You know, he does use every element that cinema has to offer from music to lighting and, you know, framing of the camera, cinematography. Editing is like so big to him and his style. And I think that's why they're so visually pleasing is that your eye is always trying to find something in the frame or there's always something new and unexpected. Absolutely. And he's worked with very talented screenwriters, of course. When I watch a Hitchcock film, and I don't do this with every director, otherwise I would drive myself crazy, but I really am paying attention to every single thing that's in the frame and why he's choosing to shoot it that way to kind of Mm -hmm. find little clues and figure out what he's trying to tell me underneath whatever's going on. And I noticed this time around, too, watching these, one thing I love, and this connection to silent films, I think, makes this stand out even more, is that what credit do we see in the opening credits right before directed by Alfred Hitchcock? It's the composer. You see Franz Waxman. You see Bernard Herrmann. Obviously, a score is an important element of a film, but to Hitchcock, that was the next best thing to being the director of a film was being his composer. So I think just... For you personally, like, what is your relationship with Hitchcock? When did you get into his movies? Was there a particular one that was like a gateway for you? I remember having seen Psycho fairly young, but I think my first one that I like absolutely fell in love with was Rear Window. And it had to have been for different reasons that on rewatch I love today, but I think I just never been so terrified in my life by a movie before Mm -hmm. and that's just like something I don't feel from movies anymore because either something is just overdone or it just takes something very special now to do that what about you what was your relationship growing up with Hitchcock I briefly mentioned this on our Frank Capra episode but Jimmy Stewart was actually my gateway into Hitchcock so Rear Window was my first one that I saw I also think Hitchcock was the first person I really knew of as a director, maybe Spielberg, but I really do think that like Hitchcock was someone who I knew of early on as a movie maker. And when I grew up, there's this movie theater in the summertime, they would play old movies there. And I went to see Rear Window when I was really little, like elementary school. I remember two things from it. One, being absolutely horrified. And two, thinking that Grace Kelly was the most beautiful person I'd ever seen. Like, she looked like a human Barbie doll. And I was just like, who who is this person? But I just remember that the fear and the terror. And yes, like part of that mm-hmm. is because I was young. But also still watching it today. It's still just as scary, even though you know it's coming. And I think in a lot of Hitchcock movies now, we do know it's coming. 
but it doesn't matter. There's still such enjoyable experiences because of the filmmaking. So let's get into Rebecca so we can talk about some more specifics about these movies. One of my favorite movies ever made by anyone. Description here. It's a story of a young woman who marries a fascinating widower only to find out that she must live in the shadow of his former wife, Rebecca, who died mysteriously several years earlier. The young wife must come to grips with the terrible secret of her handsome, cold husband, Max DeWinter. She must also deal with the jealous, obsessed Mrs. Danvers, also known as Danny. I will probably call her that during this. The housekeeper who will not accept her as the mistress of the house. This is based on the novel by Daphne du Maurier, and it stars Laurence Olivier, Joan Fontaine, and Judith Anderson. This is produced by the legendary David O. Selznick. We'll also talk about that. And, of course, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. A little background info about this movie. This was actually Hitchcock's first American film. And when you're watching this movie, it might feel very European, but this was his first film under contract with David O. Selznick. David O. Selznick, we talked about him last year with Mank, but he is this really legendary producer. He worked on Gone with the Wind the year before this, and he and Hitchcock notoriously fought during this production and did not see eye to eye at all with the vision of what this film should be think ultimately it balanced out we can get to that a little bit later but this movie won two oscars best picture and cinematography it was nominated for nine others director actor for olivier actress for fontaine supporting actress for anderson screenplay art direction black and white editing score and special effects we talk a lot about stat breakers on this podcast and what statistics to pay attention to for the oscars This would have really screwed me over back in the day because this is the only film since 1936 when the supporting acting categories were introduced to win Best Picture without winning director, any of the acting categories, or writing. Yeah, that's fascinating. That does not happen today. No, not at all. It's super weird. And big winners at the Oscars this year, you mentioned The Grapes of Wrath for Best Director. Other big winners in categories, we had Kitty Foyle and The Philadelphia Story. So another Jimmy Stewart, just in a different movie by another director. So had you seen Rebecca before? I had once before, yeah. I didn't remember the ending. This is the same discussion I always have. So (laughs) it was kind of like a new watch remembering certain things along the way but overall feeling that angst anxiety intensity as you start to near the conclusion and figure things out about what's happening i'm assuming by the poster on your wall you've seen this many times (laughs) (laughs) yes so for listeners i have a massive poster of rebecca behind me (laughs) i love this movie i have seen it many times but i hadn't watched it in maybe like a little over a year. I know I rewatched it at the beginning of the pandemic when I needed some comfort. Um, <laughs> we've talked about Qcore a little bit as a woman's director. He makes women's pictures. And Hitchcock doesn't do that necessarily, but he does have this very deep fascination with relationships between men and women and relationships in this case, between women and what we perceive to be happening in a particular relationship. And I think that he does that best here. I'm consistently horrified when I watch this movie, and I think this is like the horror movie for women. It's a signature ghost story, Mm -hmm. and one of the best at that. 
What I really like is that I think we see Rebecca once in this movie. Is that right? Just that painting. Yeah. That's our only time. She is a, a shadow that hangs over this story. And she's also the woman that's named, which I think is fascinating. Our mm-hmm. Joan Fontaine character, Mrs. DeWinter, she doesn't have a name. She is like Tenet, the protagonist. She's just this like narrator kind of <laughs> mm-hmm. leading us through the story. But I think it shows not only her place in Manderley in this new house, it shows how she views herself in that house, which is that she is a woman entering a new environment where she feels that she doesn't belong. She does not know how to make herself like fit in. And again, I think that is... Kind of every woman's worst nightmare. Molly Haskell, on one of the Criterion featurettes, she calls it like the the second wife fear like that women mm-hmm. will have. It's like, will I ever be better or like as good as the first wife? This is very much a put yourself in the mind of Mrs. DeWinters and the angst she's feeling and kind of the internalized craze you can see on her face. It reminds me of The Lost Daughter a little bit. And how it's like mm-hmm. very much a female perspective that I had to reorient myself to understand. Did you feel like this was told in the right way? Well, I think it's a perfect movie. So I will say, yes, I do think it's told in the right way. It is different than the book because I think the issues that the movie runs into, if there are any, if I'm just trying to be objective, it's the code. They can't be as clear about, you know, what happened to Rebecca, about what type of man Max DeWinter is. Mm -hmm. I think that's clear in the book because she didn't have to work with the Hayes Code and Selznick and Hitchcock did. So that's going to be a little different. But I think that the way that the story is told, especially visually, is absolutely stunning and works really Mm -hmm. well what i really love is how the movie starts we get the voiceover from if it's your first time watching it you don't know who the voiceover is from like it's just a woman's voice looking over this ruined estate saying that you know last night she returned there in a dream and when it time jumps and you have to kind of orient yourself there a little bit and we just get that shot of Laurence Olivier as Max de Winter. Every time I watch it, I still think like that he, to a viewer, it would seem like he was going to jump off of the cliff. Absolutely. <laughs> so again, starting with suspense right away. It's like, what, what happened here? Who are these people? Because it starts with an image of ruin mm-hmm. and an idea of someone returning to a place before it was ruined. You saying what kind of a man... Maxim de Winters is made me think Army Hammer being him in the remake was like a perfect match. (laughs) Yeah, it was. I mean, if you think about an emasculated, weak, evil man, that's a great, great bit of casting. (laughs) Sorry, that was that was very harsh, but his career's over, so it's fine. Yeah. (laughs) Did you watch the remake? No, no. (laughs) Okay, all right. I was going to say, I was like, if you hadn't seen this in a while and you watched that, like, that would probably throw you off even more because that thing was a mess. But I think, you know, as we start, I always almost call her Rebecca. Before our narrator becomes Mrs. DeWinter, Mm -hmm. she just looks like this young, innocent girl. And I really like how Hitchcock plays up their age difference 
and like how they look. He makes Laurence Olivier look a lot older, I think, than mm-hmm. Joan Fontaine, and she just seems very naive and innocent. And that is not the image that we get of Rebecca. We can kind of glean that she was very particular. She had a dominant personality over her husband. And we will get to, I think, very shortly, the relationship that is, I think, pretty open in the text, but can also be subtext between her and Mrs. Danvers. So... It can be a weak or insecure man's worst nightmare to have a wife like that. So when you contrast Joan Fontaine's character with what we can think of as Rebecca, Mm -hmm. I am always filled with fear for her in like even not knowing what's coming. It's just like, if you don't have that type of strength, it's obvious that he is bringing her into this world because he can control her more easily than he could Rebecca. Well, and she's also being controlled by... Edith Van Hopper. So I I see her leaving for him, for Maxim, as her choice, her freedom, really, even though that backfires, kind of. Because once she gets to Manderley, she really doesn't leave. Like, she is confined to that place. And she's constantly being haunted by this image and the monograms everywhere, the initials of Rebecca. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think really quickly before we talk about Danny, Mrs. Danvers, I don't know if you read about this, but how they used visual effects in Rebecca. So when I saw the nomination for special effects, I thought to myself, like, okay, 1940, what does this mean? Manderley was constructed using, like, two main elements, miniature photography and map painting to, like, make everything look more expansive. So when you look at Manderley, I learned that the doorway was, like, about a foot Hi, that's it, which I just always find miniatures fascinating, like the exterior shots. Wow. And Hitchcock, when we see Manderley burning, he used a high-speed camera technique that made it look like it was really up in flames when the miniature mm-hmm. was on fire. So it gave this appearance that it was this hmm. like grand estate burning up. He does love his visual effects and... Mm-hmm. They're kind of cheesy now, looking back. Not all of them, but some of them. Are you thinking about the falling? Rear window, especially. Yeah. (laughs) I did notice the painting in Rebecca. They're standing outside the front, and what's supposed to be like the foyer, you can tell is like a painting. But I think that's another way that Hitchcock's mind is working, and the production designer, too, of how can we make this setting more formidable in the cheapest way possible right and this is where i think david oselznick's help really came in because the previous year he'd worked on gone with the wind which was a massive scale production you had to build Terra, so he i think was like one of the most well-equipped people to help Mm -hmm. with something like this and briefly we don't have to get into this too much but because we touched on it for anyone who's curious about this fight between David Oselznick and Hitchcock. Basically, David Oselznick was a loyalist to the source material. So he was thinking, like, we don't want to stretch her words. Daphne du Maurier, we don't want to stretch her words. We want to use the text as our North Star. And Hitchcock, of course, is, you know, really creative. He had his own ideas in mind. For example, they were supposed to meet on a boat they weren't going to like meet at this Riviera resort. 
And I read this in a Robin Wood essay. Any Robin Wood criticism on Hitchcock is great, by the way. But apparently Maxim makes her seasick because he blows smoke in her face. And Selznick was like, absolutely not. So again, that like Hitchcock humor, I think there was kind of cut out (laughs) instead so they could be loyal to the source material. So you kind of hinted at this before of the relationship between Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca. What do you think that was? Because Mrs. Danvers is this very elusive, dominant, but also almost sneaky character. You know she doesn't like the new Mrs. DeWinter's. So as a viewer, you're always trying to think or you're waiting for them to reveal why this is or what happened. So what do you think about her relationship with Rebecca? Oh, so there's a lot I could go into here. I think it would take like an hour. I wrote a paper about this in college, but (laughs) you can read about queer theory and Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca And whether or not you think something sexual, like, happened between them or if it was just desire on Mrs. Danvers' part for Rebecca. Either way, we know that Mrs. Danvers talks about Rebecca in a very particular way. And she manipulates Mrs. DeWinter throughout. And what starts out as something seemingly protective, almost even, like... She almost wants her to be more like Rebecca so that she can please her husband. Like when she asks her what sauce she wants with dinner because Rebecca was very particular about that. But then later on, of course, it gets mean and more manipulative when she coaxes Mrs. DeWinter to wear the dress that Mm -hmm. is a direct replica, right, of what Rebecca wore. And, of course, like, everyone is so horrified and she embarrasses her. I think this is also the blueprint for so many rom-coms that we'll get later on with just, like, bad outfits that people wear. (laughs) And then, of course, I think one of the most evil scenes that Hitchcock has ever created when she's convincing her to throw herself off the balcony. Mm -hmm. She is definitely an evil character who I think she wants Mrs. DeWinter to be like Rebecca for her because of their relationship that they had, but also she's disappointed that she's not Rebecca and that Rebecca is gone. We have shots that I'm truly flummoxed, got by the censors. The way she's holding up her underwear. It's like, come on, guys. Like, you, what, what? (laughs) I mean, I'm glad it's in there. It makes it better, but they couldn't see what was right in front of them. Danny and Rebecca, long live. I never thought about it with a queer subtext going on. But I guess that relates to the very ending, in a way, when Mrs. Danvers kills herself in the fire by being consumed by the flames, basically, and the ceiling collapsing on top of her. So I think that's an interesting parallel, that maybe she was, Mm -hmm. like, in love with her Mm -hmm. and wanted to die a similar way, even though we know that's not what happened. Yeah, and I think, too, you know, throughout the movie, the way that Hitchcock captures Judith Anderson's performance as Mrs. Danvers, she is like a ghost. That beautiful shot of her behind the curtains where she looks like she could be Rebecca's ghost, the way that she kind of goes in and out of the frame or the camera will linger on a particular place and then she will enter into the frame. It very much feels like she is this other ghostly presence. The only other character that he films this way is 
Rebecca. That's my interpretation, at least, is that when mm-hmm. the camera, the way that he blocks the actors and frames each scene, sometimes it feels like ghost Rebecca is the one behind the camera, you would say, or in the frame, we just can't see her because it's almost mm-hmm. like they're being watched. So I think that they're framed in similar ways. You have a little bit of that foreshadowing, I think, that Mrs. Danvers will become a ghost. And then with Manderley in ruin, the DeWinters can end up together. It's like, how good of a thing is that, that they end up together? That is very much like a gothic horror tale. Mm-hmm. And that's cool here is that on repeated viewings, you can see certain things in a different way and it starts to transform into different meanings or have different levels associated with it. That's what makes it a masterpiece, one of his many. How do you think today's Academy would receive Rebecca? I think it would do pretty well. We always talk about the Academy having trouble with horror and I think Hitchcock is a very specific kind of horror, but I think it would do pretty well. I don't think it would get 11 nominations, but I think a lot of what is working here would still work today. What do you think? I agree. I think that it would still do well because it's so well made. Like the caliber of the craft here is just so high and it's a period film. Like I just think I can see so many things like working for it and it has horror elements but it's not an outright horror movie like you don't actually see a ghost like Mm -hmm. yes mrs danvers telling her to throw herself off the balcony is horrifying but nothing like what we would get in even rear window or psycho of course so if you could give this movie one oscar what would you give it i would give judith anderson best supporting actress i think she is incredible in this movie and to be like that strong in a supporting role, I think, makes the case for why these categories should exist. They were pretty new at this point still. I just love her in this. Like, she's what I think of when I think of this movie. Mm-hmm. What would you pick? She's almost a leading actress. She's almost one-to-one with Joan. She is. And I think, like, she does have quite a bit of screen time. It's just, like, how the categories worked back then and who, right, Mm -hmm. who was popular. I'm happy she was nominated and sad that she didn't win. I would end up giving it art direction. That's a good one. I mean, Manderly is gorgeous. And Mm -hmm. Orson Welles himself absolutely, like, ripped off some of the shots here (laughs) in the art direction for Citizen Kane. So there you go. (laughs) For anyone listening and wondering, the opening shot of Manderley is exactly like Xanadu. Mm-hmm. And then when that pillow oh, yeah. is burning at the end and we see the R, the Rebecca monogram, just mm-hmm. like Rosebud. Yeah. And because we're talking a lot about Hitchcock as this really influential director and his hold really that he still has over the film industry. What's a movie you think that like came after Rebecca that was clearly influenced by it? in Hitchcock's techniques or something like that that you would recommend? This might be quite a stretch. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm going to say Gone Girl. I was thinking about Gone Girl, so not a stretch. (laughs) Explain away. I think the female character dynamics here are a little similar. You know, when Amy is missing, she is almost this ghost-like character. Mm -hmm. And she is just looming over Nick Dunn. Mm -hmm. And I think how it deals with the male and the female characters is somewhat similar. 
But Rosamund Pike alone as Amy, I think she does function as almost playing both Rebecca and Mrs. DeWinter. So this might have different Hitchcock influences in it too. But I think this would be a really cool double feature. I agree. I really love that. Because I, when I was describing like the type of person who I thought Rebecca was and just what Maxim DeWinter probably thought of her, I think that is how Nick thinks of Amy. Like she does feel like a Rebecca, but I also see like your point about her feeling like Mrs. DeWinter too, like being in this new place. Mine is very obvious, but it has to be Phantom Thread. I think that Phantom Thread like is the remake of Rebecca. Like I don't consider the Army Hammer one to really exist. You have the Leslie Manville character, Cyril, who feels kind of like a Mrs. Danvers, like someone who has been in this house, is a little bit prickly, but runs things. You have a woman who is in an environment that she is completely unfamiliar with. You have this man who is wealthier, who is older, who just kind of picks her up out of nowhere to come be a part of his life. And all of the challenges in their relationship that ensue. It also has great gothic horror elements in it. And I think it is the only movie that is kind of... Well, Gone Girl has comedic elements to me. (laughs) But it is one of the few movies, I think, influenced or inspired by Hitchcock that actually has that, like, when I was describing earlier, as, like, being really funny and having some kink to it. Like, that's very much phantom thread so now on to rear window description here professional photographer lb jeff jeffries breaks his leg while getting an action shot at an auto race confined to his new york apartment he spends his time looking out of the rear window observing his neighbors when he begins to suspect that a man across the courtyard may have murdered his wife Jeff enlists the help of his high society fashion consultant girlfriend and its visiting nurse to investigate. It stars Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly, and Thelma Ritter. Some background info here. Grace Kelly won Best Actress at the New York Film Critics Circle and NBR. And she also won Best Actress this year, but it was for a different movie for The Country Girl. Rear Window was nominated for four Oscars for Director, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, Color, and Sound Recording. And some other big winners at the Oscars, I mentioned On the Waterfront, which won Director and Picture, and then another big winner was The Country Girl. How does Rear Window stack up for you in terms of Hitchcock's movies? It's definitely the one that I recommend to people the most. If someone wants to get into Hitchcock, as much as I would love to recommend Rebecca, Rear Window is just a straight up thriller with really scary elements too, but I feel like this can still appeal to people who aren't horror movie fans in a way that Psycho might be a little more challenging. It really holds up. I think the performances are great. Seeing people like Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly, who are still, I think, very popular names when you think of this period in Hollywood. I love watching them. I love Thelma Ritter too. I just think this movie is really fun. And I just remember even the first time I watched it thinking... I didn't even want the camera to move to the other apartment building. Like I was fine with it staying there because (laughs) as curious as I was, he builds up so much suspense and dread that I was like, the only thing I can handle right now is just staying here with him on this side. (laughs) And I think that device just works so well in telling this really unique story that so many movies have copied. So many. And 
one thing Hitchcock always does, we haven't really talked about it yet, but it's how he uses the camera as a viewpoint for a character and of the characters. And I think this movie is entirely about this technique. It's Mm -hmm. about watching and looking and then eventually how he becomes looked at as well. And that's just a fascinating psychological study. And I totally agree. I think this is the most easily consumable, easily watchable Hitchcock movie, not only with the dialogue and the characters, but I love the exposition here. Everything is laid out for you so quickly in the beginning. You know what's coming. It's a really simple story, but it functions so well, and he does it in all the right ways. I don't usually get scared when I rewatch things because I know it's coming, but here... Mm -hmm. It's just totally different. Like I have that same fear when certain things happen in the movie. I agree. And talking about establishing shots and exposition, I love how this movie opens with the camera going from his apartment, you know, staying there. But you see from the titular rear window, (laughs) all of the other units, what the people are like inside Um, what the people are like outside in this courtyard. You get a good lay of the land that this is, you know, a New York apartment building. It's supposed to take place in Greenwich Village. And you just see this quirky cast of characters that you would see if you were watching from your own window of your own apartment. It puts you right in that place. And I think also by keeping the camera there with this character, who I think is kind of right on the cusp being good or bad and Hitchcock what he does there is he says like okay you feel this way about this character spying on his neighbors well you're doing it too right like this is something you're participating in by watching this movie and you have to kind of interrogate your own beliefs it's one of the things I think that he does best is getting into that psychological space and trying to dig into that ugliness of the human mind He creates these really complex characters that feel relatable in a way. And maybe that's partly why I like this movie so much too, is that you can see yourself in these characters or just imagining yourself in this kind of situation. But also maybe not because early on we learn that he has this girlfriend and he wants to dump her. And then in walks Grace Kelly. And I was like, are you kidding me? He is the stupidest man alive. (laughs) This is my one thing when I watch this movie where every time I'm just like, this man, like she's too perfect for you. I don't get it. Yeah, she actually is. But like, are you okay? (laughs) Like, and I love the way how she is set up as this character where at the beginning, it's tempting to view her through his eyes because that's how we're viewing the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, he clearly sees her as this person who isn't adventurous, who's pretty high maintenance And who kind of tries too hard. I think that's just how he views her. But then what we see is like she's actually such a smart woman. And she is really adventurous and is willing to go to the places that he physically can't because he has a broken leg. Like he actually has a physical weakness here. Like she is the strong, Mm -hmm. the tough character. Even though she's wearing these gorgeous Edith Head costumes that fit her like a glove and like I said earlier make her look like a Barbie I think this is like the most beautiful any woman has ever looked on camera maybe besides Elizabeth Taylor in A Place in the Sun I totally agree she is stunning 
and has no place taking care of this man. But I think one of the best moments I've ever had watching a movie is that experience when she flips. I really like this line, too. I wrote it down. She goes, start at the beginning, Jeff. Tell me what you saw and what you think it means. And then it like fades to black as the scene ends. I just love that because this is a movie in the 50s, too. A lot of like female characters in these movies weren't allowed to do what Grace Kelly does here. Also noting that Grace Kelly was 25 and Jimmy was 46 when they filmed this, which is crazy. Oh, my God. She's 25. She looks old in like a good way. Like she looks mature. They both look much older. Like I thought Jimmy Stewart was like in his late 50s. I think they make him look older, especially like when he's getting the massage. He just like seems really old. Yeah. I do love Jimmy Stewart though. I think that his Hitchcock movies are my favorite. He does so much with his expressions. And I think that's why this movie really succeeds. I mean, you're seeing early on the beads of sweat dripping from his face and he can't move. He's confined to this wheelchair. So he has to do everything with his face. And I think that plays really well, especially with the camera in these close-ups. And again, this movie about watching other people's lives. And I think too, you know, we see what's going on with their relationship And at the same time, we want to, or at least I wanted to know what was going on outside of the window and like how they're going to get involved in that. But I love how Hitchcock chooses not to really show the violence early. He just leaves these little clues like the yappy dog that's in the courtyard sniffing at the flowers or the woman that they call Miss Torso in a movie about a man who (laughs) chops up his wife is wild (laughs) he's showing us all of these different characters and we have to think about how we think of them how we perceive them but we never actually see thorwald kill his wife we can only see what they see but we see just enough to know that this is what happened because i think other movies today would show the murder and wouldn't keep you really in that perspective yeah i think discretion is another really important important tactic that Hitchcock uses he knows what to say or what not to say or show and another Mm -hmm. thing I really like about this movie is the script and how there's so much foreshadowing in the dialogue especially early on I really love the sound too I think that the way that they use diegetic sound I'm really happy it got a sound recording nomination the way that they use that here instead of using a score throughout like he does in Mm -hmm. most of his movies that is such a crucial part of like that living in an apartment like that of that experience is what you can hear and what you can't really avoid noise wise and it just gives so much life to the space and acts i think almost as this other character in the movie as the car horn (laughs) blares outside your window (laughs) yes (laughs) I actually do have like a rear window situation in my apartment. I will tell you about that another time. And thinking about what you said about, you know, when she like wants to hear everything and wants to become involved. I kind of love how she uses her existing skills to help solve this crime. Like how she and Thelma Ritter are like, would you ever leave your wedding ring behind? 
no. That's something that he would never understand or even think of because, as we know, he's, like, very crotchety, especially when it comes to relationships or the prospect of marriage, but they're able to think in a really different way about it, and I really love that. And I think today in a movie, the director would follow her across the courtyard and we would see her going into Thorwald's apartment. I think a director would shift perspectives, but I love how he keeps the camera still with Jeff and we can see her like when she gets the ring and she puts it on. I love that shot of her kind of flashing the ring behind her mm-hmm. back. And then when he notices and yep. looks up, yeah. terrifying. <laughs> yeah, that's when it really cranks up for me. Because from there on out, it's just a total rush. I forget if it was Lisa or Stella, but one of them says women aren't that unpredictable about the wedding ring and leaving things behind. I love all of their digs at him, especially Thelma Ritter, of course, is like a classic supporting actress figure from the time. Also in another favorite of ours, All About Eve. And she is perfect as Stella in this movie. Yeah, I loved every time she had a line, it was something sassy, and I was always waiting to see what she would say next. How did you take the ending with the Harper's Magazine? I love that. I've always loved that. That was actually my like Twitter banner photo for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> because I would do the same thing. We've all pretended to like things for people that we like. So I think that's normal. I think it's funny. It's like a very cheeky way to end the movie. Mm-hmm. And, like, she's so cool. She has a great job. I hope she didn't, like, leave and go camp with him. She can be adventurous in New York. Probably the part I liked least about this movie, and it's not really even the movie. It's just about L.B. Jeffries, is that he only gets back together with Lisa or continues seeing her because she goes on this journey and, like, wants to help him solve this crime. I think it's so selfish. I agree, because... And this is why he's always annoyed me as a character is because like she had to prove herself for him, mm-hmm. but he didn't really do anything differently to prove himself to her, right? Like he's not reading a Harper's Bazaar. He's not putting on designer clothes or doing what she would supposedly think is important. But maybe that's because those things aren't as important for her in a man. Maybe she's looking at relationships less superficially and like in a more mature way, even though he's like clearly the older character. But Mm -hmm. yes, it is frustrating. I agree. Do you have a favorite shot from this movie? I really love the classic close up of Jeff looking into the camera And I also really love the one where you see Stella, Jeff, and Lisa from behind. And it's really dark in the the apartment. And Mm -hmm. you're looking out across the way and you just kind of see a little light on in Thorwald's apartment. I like that one. I really like the shot when Thorwald's apartment is black and he's just smoking the cigar. And you see his face light up. That is so scary. (laughs) So spooky. (laughs) And then one of my favorite sequences, it's not really anything to do with the camera, but it's just of the woman in the lower apartment. And when she has that dinner alone, like that is just so sad, but so like real. Mm -hmm. And especially in New York, you see everything. But to watch this play out is so heartbreaking. It really is. And just especially like when she opens the door and you do think like someone will be there, but she's just alone. (laughs) So how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? 
I don't think it would be received as well because this one is much more of a thriller. If it were this well made and if it were actually original today, maybe. I also think, you know, having two movie stars as the leads would help its chances. But this to me feels much more like, unfortunately, this is so awful. It just sounds like a movie that would go on to Netflix or HBO Max and wouldn't get to the Oscars. What about you? I think even four back in the day sounds like such a low number, Mm -hmm. but I definitely think it would have fewer today, Mm -hmm. which is so sad. I think as Hitchcock gets scarier and scarier, the nominations decrease steadily. So, but yeah, I will say this is my favorite Hitchcock. Wow. I mean, it's a good one. I think a lot of people would list this as their favorite too. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? Oh, this is so hard. Ugh. Mm-hmm. I was refraining from making a comment earlier because I was going to give it to Thelma Ritter. And cinematography is also really close, but I'm going to have to go with director here. Yeah, I mean, that's a great pick. His choices, it's a very clear vision. And and being Hitchcock, I think that's why this really succeeds. What would you give it? I would give it sound recording, actually. Just talking about that earlier, I think that the way that sound is used here to bring this setting really to life is really unique and is my favorite technical component of the movie. But I would give it a couple, just like with Rebecca and Mm -hmm. just like Psycho, which we will talk about next. (laughs) And then what would you recommend as like a modern play on Rear Window? So this movie is actually influenced by a couple of Hitchcock movies, but I would recommend Body Double by Brian De Palma. It has a very clear Mm. reference to Rear Window in it that is fun, I think. Um, Much more like a B-horror movie, but I really love that one. And if you haven't watched Brian De Palma, he clearly loves Hitchcock, so I will recommend that one. What about you? Oh, that's such a great one. I'm going to have to go with the obvious here and say Disturbia. It had to be said. Um, It's incredible. (laughs) I think I was just as intrigued when I saw that. But this one is so much fun. And while it is gorier, I think it captures a lot of what Rear Window is doing and its better elements. So our last movie that we'll talk about, I think, is Hitchcock's most well-known and most popular movie, and that is Psycho. When larcenous real estate clerk Marion Crane goes on the lam with a wad of cash in hopes of starting a new life, she ends up at the notorious Bates Motel, where manager Norman Bates cares for his housebound mother. The place seems quirky but fine until Marion decides to take a shower. This description is so funny. Okay, letterboxed. This movie stars Janet Leigh, Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles, John Gavin, and Martin Balsam. It was nominated for four Oscars, Director, Supporting Actress for Lee, Art Direction Black and White, and Cinematography Black and White. The big winners this year were The Apartment, of course, which we mentioned earlier, Elmer Gantry, and Sons and Lovers. So this movie made $50 million on... A budget of $806,000. So this was a huge commercial hit. Shocked audiences everywhere. There are sequels. There's a remake. There's a series called Bates Motel. That's like a prequel series with Vera Formiga. Did you know everything? Slash was it spoiled for you before you watched this movie? I'm sure it was. This is probably one of the first movie spoilers that people talk about ever. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like this, Star Wars, I'm sure Spielberg in there somewhere. 
So this viewing, I really tried to just watch the movie knowing the ending, but trying to displace that from Mm -hmm. my viewing experience. And I think that did really help, actually, because I hadn't seen this for a while. I did remember a lot of what was going to happen, but... Like in the beginning, I didn't realize there was so much conversation happening before she even gets on the road. Like they have to establish that she's this real estate clerk, but also that she has this boyfriend who is very attractive and they want to get married or run away together. And so I was really impressed by that and how well that actually worked with the story. Yeah. Before we even get to Marion Crane... The title sequence, the music, the iconic Bernard Herrmann score, those stunning Saul Bass credits, it ramps it up right away, and I was hooked. Mm-hmm. And I think I had always like had this weird misconception that Psycho was like lesser Hitchcock to me. I don't know why or where that really came from, but this time I was like, I'm just going to, I haven't watched it in a long time, I'm going to just let myself fall into this movie, and... Oh my god, I was actually really blown away by it in a way I didn't expect. I thought it really held up. And, you know, we see Marion right away. And I think if you you know the ways that Hitchcock in particular, like, loves blonde women and always has these comments about the women in his stories, it starts out pretty scandalous. Like, she's with this really hot man, like you mentioned, and... It's like an illicit affair. There's like talk of them running away together and like making things work. And instantly, right, there's an idea that she is, by all definitions of films that we've seen up to this point, like not a good woman, whatever that means. It goes on and she starts making these little mistakes. And you're going to see these mistakes add up and you know that. And you also know that because it's Hitchcock, she's going to have to pay for her decisions. So all of that tension is building, building, building. But clearly, I mean, in the first half, you have every indication that this woman is the main character. Yeah, I agree. She is the first 47 minutes of this movie. Mm -hmm. And there is no real indication that she's going away. But you mentioned the credit sequence immediately the music is firing you up. I have the same memory of Psycho 2, actually, that I think because it was this really popular Hitchcock that it was somehow inferior. Mm -hmm. And that is like 100% my own misgiving because I watched this and I really, really loved it. Maybe the worst elements were some like cheesy special effects again, but like... Mm -hmm. Even that, it's just Hitchcock at this point. Exactly. What's so cool about it is the first half of this movie, and when we talk about that, it's up until the shower scene, one of the most famous scenes in film history. It's like a film noir. In 1960, audiences were very familiar with film noir. They had grown up watching these movies. They knew the general structure, but directors weren't really making them as much as they were in the 40s or even into the 50s. So this was kind of odd in a way, probably to audiences, but it was something they were familiar with and probably really liked. You know, you have a lot of tension being built up. This cop is like following her. She goes to like hastily get this new car, which was, you just feel that tension being built up. I'm like, please like fake it a little better. Um, (laughs) And she has all of this cash on her. So 
yeah, it's like noir and today you'd think of it as like very similar to like a Coen Brothers movie, like that type of structure. And then it becomes my favorite type of movie ever where it flips and you get a mm-hmm. completely modern story. I can't imagine what it would have been like to see this like back then. But before we do the shower scene, right? Like she's told she spends a night sleeping in her car and she's told by a police officer he suggests she stay in a motel. Great foreshadowing again in the script, just like with Mm -hmm. Rear Window. And she arrives at our infamous Bates Motel. What do you think of Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates? This is something I also tried to take in in a new way this time. He is like scary good at playing Norman Bates. Mm -hmm. He is young. He's handsome. He's so personable. He has... Marion over for dinner because he doesn't want her to be alone and obviously there's reason for that but there's no reason to suspect him at first and I think he's incredible yeah what do you think I was just floored by his performance here I was so scared but also I just kept thinking to myself like without Anthony Perkins like we don't have Andrew Garfield we don't have Timothy Chalamet like we do not have this like particular thing that modern actors do who have similar have a similar vibe to them right this like Mm -hmm. tall and thin handsome can be super quirky and kind of awkward and that's what makes you let your guard down in a way I feel like Hitchcock and Perkins kind of discovered that especially because Ed Gein who this character is based on this real serial killer in the Robert Block novel is not like this. Like he does not look like Norman Bates. That was a Hitchcock invention to make him look this way. I don't know. I feel like he is a really great physical actor, like his mannerisms, the way he would kind of like laugh and be really charming and then kind of have these blank eyes all of a sudden when she would say something about his mother. Terrifying. Just incredible stuff. And just taxidermy is so spooky. I just, like, that is a no-go as far as hobbies are concerned (laughs) for me. Yeah, once we go into his back office, like, that is when it gets really spooky. Mm -hmm. And I also love, like, he mentioned so many times, and we see so many shots of him being obsessed with birds. And her last name is Crane, another bird. Mm -hmm. Love that. So going into the shower scene, first, like, I can't imagine how scared audiences must have been just seeing him as this peeping tom like looking at her through this hole in the wall Mm -hmm. this had to have completely devastated motel revenue oh my god yeah like there's no way i'm ever going into a motel ever again this scene so right before the shower scene that included when she tears up the piece of paper where she was doing the math about the money and how much she'd spent on the car Mm -hmm. It was the first ever toilet flush ever captured in a movie. Whoa. Mm-hmm. I t- that's, yeah. that's so weird. <laughs> yeah. It's something that had never, like, because of the code, hmm. for some reason they didn't think that was appropriate to show, but first ever. And then I think with the shower scene, probably one of the most terrifying shots ever of when you see Marion and then behind her, the door opens. Like, that is oh. just a total nightmare. Awful. And that's what it is. It's a mix of surprise and suspense. And then there's so much editing in this scene, which is why it works so well, too, of shots of the shower and her body parts and the knife and the fake blood dripping down 
And then I do love the final swirl into the drain and then mm-hmm. cut to her eye and the camera's turning. I, it's so good. Yeah. And there are just so many like facts about this, but also like urban legends about this scene that I think are so interesting. And you can analyze this for hours, days. There's a whole documentary called 7852 Hitchcock's Shower Scene, which is about this. The most interesting thing, well, two things that I thought were cool. The first was that Hitchcock originally didn't want any music to be in this scene at all. Hmm. But Bernard Herrmann was like, no, I have this piece that we should use. And Hitchcock, of course, like thought it totally ratcheted up the tension. He doubled his salary. <laughs> like imagine it without the music. Oh my God. And then the other one is that Hitchcock originally wanted like a God's eye shot of Marion's body laying on the ground, but the producers didn't want it. So we don't get that, Mm. but I think it's okay without that. But just knowing he wanted to crank it up even more is fun. I need like director's cuts for all of his movies. Mm -hmm. And it's also like you have right this whole thing of her again, like bringing up Robin Wood and the film theory. She in this moment is like washing away her sins. That's this whole thing is right. She's tried to correct all of these mistakes that she's made. And ultimately like the shower is where the audience up to that point would have been like, okay, she's good. Like she's cleansing herself, etc. her sins, her guilt. But that's when the flip happens. And it's the best thing ever. What I also really love about Hitchcock is that many of his movies are adaptations. And the book here was really violent in the shower scene. I think it was that he beheads her. But the fact that he does it in his own way and he uses violence in editing instead of actual gore or things he shows, I think that's his power shining through. I completely agree. And, you know, we have to give credit to George Tomasini. He's Hitchcock's editor who worked on most of his films. Just incredible editing in this movie. Audiences also at the time were screaming, apparently. I'm sure. They didn't have anything like this. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I wish I could have. I think if I could pick one screening to go back to and like watch with the audience at the time, not knowing anything, it would be this movie. And we have to mention too, Janet Lee is Jamie Lee Curtis's mom. So another scream queen. Whoa. <laughs> Hitchcock starts the theme that we see across horror movies, especially in the 70s and 80s, where if you have sex in a horror movie, you die, especially if you're a woman. And Janet Lee starts that, and Jamie Lee Curtis in John Carpenter's Halloween, she's the opposite, right? Like, she is the one of her friends who isn't with a guy in this movie, and she's the final girl. So I love that parallel. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. And then post-shower scene, though, I think what is so terrifying and what really stood out to me on this watch was how long Hitchcock spends with Norman Bates cleaning up the crime scene. I feel like that was probably just as horrifying to people as the murder. Just like watching him clean that bathroom and take her body out on the shower liner. Mm -hmm. That's just like, oh my God. I wonder if at this point, audiences thought Norman was innocent. Definitely. I think they still did because they think it's his mom. Oh oh my God. (laughs) 
So I bet audiences at this time were like, he's good. Like he's, he just poor guy. Like he's taking care of his mom. Like she's crazy. She's killing people and he's making sure she doesn't get in trouble. That's mind blowing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And again, Anthony Perkins, great actor here. Mm-hmm. clearly is like nervous and disgusted but you see in his eyes like that feeling that he's doing this for someone else and then it's his mom who he can't get away from but also and it made me wonder too when i watched this i noticed that when he's talking to janet lee that he says he's like showing her the room and he won't say bathroom mm-hmm. i think at first yeah. i was like oh he's just being awkward like he won't say bathroom in front of this woman but now i'm like he's killed people in those bathrooms before probably it's like a little tick in his brain. I'm sure he's killed before in there. Oh, my God. I hadn't even thought of that. <laughs> Isn't that scary? Wow. I also love Martin Balsam in this movie as Arbogast. I think he gives a really nuanced, fun performance. And my favorite shot in this whole movie is not from the shower scene. It's from when Arbogast goes to visit Bates Motel. And he's looking at the book like of names where you sign in. And the camera, mm-hmm. it's that low angle shot and it's kind of of Norman Bates's head and it's tilted. It casts a shadow. It's like underneath him. I'm doing a really bad job of explaining this. But you can actually like see his throat move as he's getting nervous talking to this guy. <laughs> I love that he puts the camera on him in that really unsettling way instead of just putting mm-hmm. it, you know, on Arbogast or on the two of them having this conversation. Yeah. So good. I don't know if it would be my favorite shot, but it's either one or two, and that's of Arbogast in the house as he's falling down the stairs. That is the number two scene in this movie for me, and the way it's executed is just spot on. Me too. I somehow forgot that that happened, and like when it <laughs> happened in the movie, I was like, oh my god, another like another one, and it tricks us again. Like He's only in the movie for such a short period of time, and then just... Mm-hmm. You have that shot and you see his eyes as he's falling down the stairs. Oh, my God. Well, I think you assume he's going to go up and look around and not be assaulted the minute he steps on that top step. Right. It's so quick. And that's where we get that bird eye shot. And and that is so scary to me because <sighs> you see the mother walking out and that is very unexpected at first. We've already spoiled Psycho. I mean, I guess you can't really spoil it anymore. It's 60 years later. But let's talk a little bit about the ending. So we get this reveal that it isn't Mrs. Bates after all. It's actually Norman dressing up as his mother, killing the people. There's a fantastic shot of the sister finding what she's supposed to be the mother in a chair and it turns and then it's, you know, scary, scary in today's world, not so much, I don't think, but I think the effect is still there. And then when Norman comes in, knife at hand, and then Sam obviously comes in to save the day. I guess as like the first part of the ending, do you like this? I like that twist. It probably would have really shocked audiences, especially because they've gotten all of these hints and some information earlier on. They learn that Norman's mother like poisoned this man and herself supposedly with strychnine but we learn that isn't true of course and I love when it's like when they say that she was buried in Green Lawn Cemetery and they're like well 
And then she's going through the house, and when she sees that depression in the mattress, like a body has been there forever. (laughs) Anyway, I like this. I like the slow turnaround in the chair to reveal that it's the skeleton. And then, of course, like that signature Hitchcock animated face reacting to (laughs) this horror. But it doesn't end there. I think, yeah, that's the first ending. And then we get the ending ending. I guess my question of do you like this should have come to the second part, which is basically the explanation behind why Norman the way he is. And they're at the police station. He's in jail. This play to me like a little too heavy handed, like they were trying to spoon feed us what was happening and why. But maybe also in the 60s, like this was new information. And maybe that was also shocking back then. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's frustrating to be spoon-fed anything, but I think it's essential in 1960. Like, they didn't have true crime podcasts that had millions of listeners. They didn't have every (laughs) actor under 35 that was somewhat good-looking playing Ted Bundy in some Lifetime movie or other. This was completely new to them, and they kind of needed that explanation. And what I actually love about the explanation is that Hitchcock is kind of, it's kind of like his middle finger to the audience because they didn't get Vertigo. Vertigo was this big commercial failure and, you know, didn't get him these Oscar <laughs> nominations that the other ones did. And it's a work of genius. So he comes along with mm-hmm. Psycho and he's like, you want to be spoon fed? Here it is. I'm going to give you the explanation that I didn't give you in my masterpiece. And I also love... That it's kind of a misdirection. I think the explanation here is wrong. I don't think that this is why Norman kills. And I think it's Hitchcock playing with the viewer again. So I Mm -hmm. love that. You know, the audience needed it because they didn't have stuff like this. But also it's Hitchcock's little, you know, his sense of humor coming in. My favorite part here comes at the end right before we see the car. And it's of Norman Bates super exposed with the skeleton as his face. I love that shot, too. I love the facial expression. Anthony Perkins just, he he kills this role. He does so mm-hmm. well. And just this final moment is so memorable and terrifying. So how do you think today's Academy would receive this? As I mentioned before, the scarier he gets, the worse he does at the Oscars. And I think this is right there along with Rear Window, especially for, I don't know, because it was popular, I feel like now that we're moving into like 10 Best Picture nominees, that could almost play into it. But most of me still feels like this wouldn't do that well. And four isn't that many to begin with, but I would maybe give it one or two. Yeah, it's hard because you could almost view it as like something like Get Out, where it just somehow gets nominated mm-hmm. for Best Picture. But this, to me, like doesn't have that commentary aspect that I feel like today's Academy likes in order to accept a horror movie. I think it would be like when Kubrick made The Shining. I mean, it's just like this master yeah. doing something really cool, making a horror movie. That I think they would just look right past it. This would just be like another one that, you know, audiences would love and would complain Oscar mm-hmm. nomination morning when Anthony Perkins isn't there. <laughs> <laughs> And then if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? Okay, so my real answer is I would give Hitchcock Best Director. I stand by what I said earlier. This, to me, is, of his nominations, my favorite. As far as direction goes, especially, I just think it's it's pretty miraculous. 
But if I'm cheating and have to also, which I'm just going to do, I'm picking something that wasn't nominated. Best actor for Anthony Perkins, for sure. (laughs) This movie really influenced, like, the rest of his career. Like, he was kind of typecast after this. Like, he was the psycho killer. Like, I'm sure people on the street went up to him and were like, a boy's best friend is his mother. It was probably really hard. So I'm going to give him my Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? I could only imagine him walking down the street and just hearing Psycho being whispered behind his back and like having to live that until the day he died. Oh my god, yeah, or like the music. That's terrible. Ugh. Well, speaking of the music, that's what I'm giving it. I'm giving it to Herman for score because I really liked your comment before about his salary getting doubled. But yes, Psycho would still be a good movie without it, but it is incredible with it. So... It's so unmistakable and horrifying. That's a great pick. And what like modern day movie would you recommend that was influenced by Psycho? So again, I'm going to go literal here <laughs> with another motel movie. But now that I mentioned motel, it makes me think of Bad Times at the El Royale, which I liked. But I'm going with Identity with John Cusack. What is this? I have never seen this. <gasps> Oh my god. This was like me growing up. I loved Murder by Numbers with Sandra Bullock. Do you know that one? No. This is (gasps) like totally lost on me. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they're just like bad B-horror movies like Frequency too. Did you see that? Mm -mm. (laughs) (laughs) No. These like really early 2000s ones that weren't big hits are Mm -hmm. like misses. I think this is where like me just being a couple of years younger than you shows. <laughs> Identity had a huge cast. This was John Cusack, Amanda Peet, John Hawks, Ray Liotta, Alfred Molina, Cleo Duvall. This was from 2003. I'll read the description here. Stranded at a desolate Nevada motel during a nasty rainstorm, 10 strangers become acquainted with each other when they realize that they're being killed off one by one. I will watch this. It has, like, decent reviews, too, so it's not, like, 12-year-old me just enjoying (laughs) all the horror I could take in. (laughs) It's James Mangold, too, the director of Ford vs. Ferrari. See? You have to watch. Okay, I'll add it to my list. (laughs) And what's your movie? Mine is also, like, pretty literal, inspired by the same serial killer, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think that this is like essential horror movie viewing and completely like ratchets up the slasher genre. But another one that we recommend all the time that I think lifted from Psycho in a different way, which is just structurally is hereditary. It has that kind of A and B side structure, which I really like. So that's another good one. Love those. And then I think just because there are so many Hitchcock movies if you had to like recommend one other favorite that we didn't talk about, which one would you pick? It's so hard because there's so many and so many good ones. I like Dial M for Murder. That's kind of his normal fare. I would love to see it in 3D because that's how it was originally filmed. But also funny about that is that seeing things in 3D was already like outdated, which that's has funny. come and <laughs> gone to pass again. <laughs> but I will go with Rope here. Everyone knows I love a short movie, and this is barely 80 minutes, so that has it going for it. But also, yes, Hitchcock's famous like one-take take of that kind of movie. It's about these two men who murder very early on, 
one of their classmates from Harvard because they want to pull off the perfect murder. And it, it's supposed to happen in real time. It's like mm-hmm. near real time, which is also really cool. But it's like the slowly devolving, going insane internally story that mm-hmm. is fun to watch. So that is what I would recommend. What about you? Also, Rope is another queer subtext Hitchcock mm-hmm. movie. Yes, which is fun to dissect. Definitely. So as I've mentioned like multiple times, Vertigo is my favorite, but I feel like that is the answer most people give. It just like when I watched it, it really did hit me in that way. I had watched it a long time ago and didn't really understand it. And then I actually watched it again in the pandemic and was totally blown away by it. And was like, this is the best movie that's ever been made. But my answer here is actually Notorious which was a first-time watch for me also during quarantine when I watched a lot of Hitchcock. This stars Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. It's less of, like, Hitchcock doing horror and more of him. I would say it's more similar to Rebecca, if you really like Rebecca. It just has, I mean, incredible set pieces. It is my favorite shot in any Hitchcock movie. I will just say with the key and the staircase. If you've seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about. And yeah, has Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman, and they're fabulous in it. So definitely recommend that one too. I think these show a great contrast because on one side, you have Hitchcock doing horror and suspense. And on the other side, you have him doing psychological. Mm-hmm. And throughout all of his movies, he worked with so many greats. Like you said, Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly, like it's insane the amount of people and Mm -hmm. the caliber of actors that he's worked with let alone crew members but the range that he spans also makes it fun in viewing his movies because you don't really know what to expect i completely agree i had so much fun talking with you about these movies this is just a small sample in hitchcock's fantastic filmography and i really think that what i really love most about him when i think about it is that he is such a gateway for people to love cinema and to like explore new genres and filmmaking techniques and crafts. He worked with so many incredible collaborators on music and writing and just production. We also forgot to mention his greatest collaborator, Alma Reveal, his wife. So I think any of these are a great place to start, but as everyone also knows by now, I love rewatching movies and His movies are just so much fun to return to. So even if you've already seen them, like give some of these, any of his movies really a watch again. October and Halloween time is always like a good excuse to watch Hitchcock. And then just finishing up, we asked all of you on Twitter again to rank his five best director nominations. And I don't think it's any surprise here. And I think we may have prefaced this at the beginning (laughs) in a way, but Psycho was our big winner, the big crowd pleaser. And then in number two came Rear Window, followed by Rebecca in third. So we cover the top three, which is great. (laughs) I love that. And thank you all for voting. Hitchcock has some really passionate fans and supporters. So thank you. We will try to cover more like throughout, you know, at Mm -hmm. another time. There's there's so much to cover. So I'm glad we got to just at least do these three today. We didn't even mention The Birds or Shadow of a Doubt, which is his personal favorite movie, which I don't know how you could have one, but... I know. Or like North by Northwest, which is another incredibly famous one. 
They're actually mm-hmm. on Mount Rushmore. Like That's a set piece in the movie. So <laughs> you really can't go wrong. So next time on Oscar Wilde, we'll be continuing our Halloween talk with two Oscar-nominated movies from the 1970s again. <laughs> One that did fairly well with nominations, which is The Exorcist, and the other which was nominated but didn't do as well and didn't win, and this is Carrie. And I am so excited to see Carrie. I've never seen this before. It's a classic Brian De Palma. And now that my love for De Palma has grown, I am shaking in my boots. (laughs) One, I am so excited that you love De Palma. Like I would have never predicted it, but I am, you know, (laughs) statistics break like we say all the time. So I'm really (laughs) excited for you to watch Carrie. This was the movie that scared me the most for many years. So I'm very excited to revisit it and dive into, you know, what it is about that movie that really shook me when I first watched it and those great performances that were nominated. And The Exorcist had 10 Oscar nominations and was the first horror movie to be nominated for Best Picture. So I think it'll also be really exciting to dive into that one. Mothers and daughters, you know, always great for horror movies. (laughs) Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Wilde Pod, and we will see you next week. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye.